Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Canuck podcast on another beautiful day that the Lord has made. Thanks for joining us from near and far here across Canada and around the world. What a great universal church we belong to. Quote, do not look forward to the changes and chances of this life in fear. Rather, look to them with full hope that as they arise, God, whose you are, will deliver you out of them. He is your keeper. He has kept you hitherto. Do you but hold fast to his dear hand, and he will lead you safely through all things. And when you cannot stand, he will bear you in his arms. Do not look forward to what may happen tomorrow. Our Father will either shield you from suffering, or he will give you strength to bear it. End quote from the great St. Francis de Sales, whose feast day we just celebrated Recently, January 24th is his feast day, and I thought that was a real timely quote from uh, one of the great doctors of the church. A lot of fear in this world, a lot of anxiety, a lot of misrepresentation of the truth. I don't know how else to say it. It is what it is, and it's been like that for a couple of years, but I know I've been so encouraged to see the outpouring of support and the outpouring of uh, the defense of truth and the promotion of truth in this, uh, this world of lies. And we know the devil. The devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And uh, it's been really interesting to me as a Catholic to, to look upon so many people uh, that I never thought in a million years would ever be allies of mine in freedom and liberty. And, uh, and unfortunately, sometimes the people that I thought would be beside me the most on these issues of freedom and liberty in this world are the ones that are the furthest away from me. And it's been a real wake-up call for me, and it's really a reminder to, to live in a state of grace so that we can think clearly. St. Augustine said, sin makes you dumb. Sin darkens the intellect. It makes you stupid. It really does. And that's why the, the calling card of this podcast is to live a sacramental life, to go to confession often, to receive the Eucharist worthily, and to have a, a daily prayer life, a devotion to Our Lady and to the saints and to ultimately to, to not only be, well, we need to be holy ourselves. We need to take care of our own souls first. But if we do that, then we're going to take care of our, our spouse, our wives, and uh, our children, speaking specifically to men. And, uh, and then we can go out to the community in our parish and we can really uh, be a, a beacon of light and an instrument of evangelization to others. So I was really, really excited to get together with our good friend Ken Litchfield again. Ken joined us back on episode number 37. And, uh, you know, he really inspires me. Ken uh, actually got into apologetics through reading the Left Behind series. If you remember that, we might have to get Ken back on to talk specifically about that series, specifically kind of focusing on um, the rapture, um, really a misrepresentation or at least a misinterpretation maybe of the book of Revelation by, unfortunately, by some of our our Protestant brothers and sisters. But uh, that's what got Ken into um, learning about apologetics and explaining and defending the Catholic faith and then sharing that with others. So uh, he's kind of a, he's, it's all self-study. He picked it up himself as a real uh, inspiration to me. He wrote a book here just a couple of years ago uh, that was called How Old Is Your Church? An Introductory Catholic Apologetic Guide. And that was uh, back, uh, I guess, in 2018. So he came and joined us in episode 37 to talk about that book. And I thought, you know, it's overdue for us to get Ken back on to uh, chat about uh, his faith and talking about 
scripture and how, how the Bible came to be. We have a lot of stories out there. Uh, again, a lot of uh, misinterpretations of what exactly happened and how we got the Bible. But uh, Ken explains a little bit about the uh, early church fathers and how they influenced uh, the scripture coming together to the Bible that we see today. And also uh, what happened around the time of the English translation. Obviously, most of us, uh, if, if English is not our first language, it's certainly our second language and is... Uh, become really accepted around the world as one of the, the primary languages that a lot of people speak. And uh, it's uh, interesting information that Ken's got of how the scriptures came to be and how we've got our Bible today that we can read the Word of God in our own language. So really excited to share this conversation with Ken Litchfield again. Really appreciate Ken's um, his desire to, to learn more about his faith and then to, to share it with others. And I think we can all learn a lot of valuable lessons from that. So Without further ado, our good friend Ken Litchfield. We'll see you on the other side, my friends. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, Ken Litchfield is a Catholic apologist, and author, and including a book that we talked about back on episode number 37, and that book is called How Old Is Your Church? An Introductory Catholic Apologetic Guide. So it's great to catch up with him again and talk a little bit about the history of the compilation of Scripture. So welcome back to the Catholic Connect podcast, Ken Litchfield. Hey, Ken. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Um, really love doing this stuff. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you came back. Like I said, I've been thinking about you the last few uh, months. I've been, uh, I follow you on Facebook. I think we're friends on Facebook. I see your posts and I thought, man, it's overdue to get Ken back and chat a little bit about uh, apologetics and uh, some things that we can learn about in the church and particularly with scripture too. But uh, I also feel uh, a little better because as we record this, it's uh, January of 2022, and it is really cold where I am in Alberta. But you're telling me it's pretty cold in Michigan too, so I guess we're. Uh, it's nice to hear that uh, we're not the only ones that are living in uh, in an, basically a deep freeze here in Alberta. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah, why Michigan and Alberta we get along so good. With uh, we, we both love hockey, and we both have severe weather to deal with. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of your your posts that you do some apologetics work with some folks in the Middle East. Maybe tell us about that ministry a little bit, Ken. That sounds really interesting. Sure. Um, I have connected with a lot of Christians over in Pakistan. And uh, even just this morning, I was doing a class with them. We get together every Saturday uh, for about an hour and answer questions for them over there. Um, one of the things we covered this morning was, you know, why do Catholics make the sign of the cross and Protestants don't? Um, so they have plenty of questions over there because even though Christians are a minority in, in Pakistan, um, there are Protestant Christians there and Catholic Christians. So there's still the same disputes that they have there that we have here. That relationship between Catholics and Protestants there, do you, do you find it's a little bit more positive? I mean, I, I'm just guessing that they really have to stick together when they're in a minority in a place like that. Right. Um, you know, they don't have any, like, knockdown, drag-out fights, but they do get together and, you know, discuss scripture and uh, church traditions and things like that. So we... Uh, we do what we can to share the information. Yeah, no big Twitter and Facebook wars, I'm guessing there. They probably have some bigger issues that they need to tackle in their spare time. But uh, that's so good, and it really goes to show the universality of our faith, right? And, Amen. And uh, the, um, people want to seek truth. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. And 
it's such a blessing to have the Catholic Church that we can have these answers. And even discussing these things with Protestants, yeah, they have a lot of the truth, most of the truth. And for us to introduce them, sometimes you got to do it firmly, but always, always charitably, right, Ken? And and that's yep. what we're here for, and, and to bring them to Christ. And uh, I always like to say it, to bring them to the Eucharist is really what we want to bring them to. And uh, once you... Once you see it, once you experience it, once you believe it, you can just never go back, can you, Ken? It's uh, one of those things you can't unsee and unbelieve, at least in my books, once you've really grasped the concept of uh, how beautiful the Eucharistic life is, right? So um, I want to talk to you about uh, about Scripture. This is something you've written a lot of on a different, a lot of different topics with apologetics. But uh, one of the things that, uh, that you've uh, come up with and, and have some writings on is Scripture and the development of Scripture. So... Let's kind of take it back to, um, I want to talk to you about uh, the English translations as well, which is, is quite interesting in itself. But let's even go back to before the time of Christ. Um, Jewish scripture, and that's where, you know, a lot of the Old Testament, well, all of the Old Testament came from the Jewish people for us, right? So maybe tell us a little bit about um, what the, the Old Testament was called back then and, and what it looked like in the, in the time of Christ and before the time of Christ. Right. So, um a lot of modern Christians, you know, think that, you know, the Jews just had one Old Testament, uh, and that's the same Old Testament that we have today. But that's not true. <laughs> uh, different sets of Jews had different sets of scriptures. Uh, and let's see, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees that were the temple priests and the things like that, they only used the five books of Moses as scripture. Um, so when they challenged Jesus, he has to quote from just the five books of Moses to refute what they're challenging him with. The Pharisees, they had a larger set of scriptures, um, but it wasn't necessarily the same set of scriptures everywhere. And early Christians, they would write to the different synagogues to find out what sets of books they had in their tabernacle um, so that they would know what kind of references they used to support their faith to help Christians better be able to talk to them so they can work off the same page. And when the Greeks pretty much conquered all of the Mediterranean area, uh, Greek became kind of like the standard language around the Mediterranean. So the Jews around there, they learned Greek and they wanted a scripture that they could use that was in Greek. So the Septuagint was developed, which was a Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. And it includes the modern 66 books of the later Jewish Masoretic text that Protestants use but it also includes all the books that the Catholics and the Orthodox use, including Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Jesus, son of Sirach, also known as just Sirach, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, additions to Daniel, additions to Esther, and one, two, three, and four Maccabees. Uh, now the Greek churches generally use three and four Maccabees and the Catholic Church does not include those in our canon of scripture, but just like many other early Christian writings, you know, we use those for historical reference and things like that. 
but we don't read three and four Maccabees in our church. And when the Catholic Church established the canon of scripture, it was establishing the list of books that we can read in church during the liturgy. It's not saying that all the other ones are worthless and not inspired or don't have any good information. It's just these are the books that we can read during the liturgy. These are inspired by God. And I think that's an important distinction too, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people say that, uh, well, let's face it, let's just get into the scripture first. And I'm sure, uh, you know, the other questions about, well, what other, you know, potential books in the Old Testament are we potentially, um, were, were written but are not being used in the Bible? But um, maybe talk about the, the authority of the Catholic Church and that, that council to establish which books could be read during the liturgy, especially from the Old Testament. The Catholic Church didn't kind of like nail down the Old Testament until like uh, around 382 AD is when Pope Damasus of Rome listed the 46 books that we now have in our Old Testament as the Old Testament canon. Um, before that, you know, they were generally using the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Um, when Jerome was commissioned to make the Latin Vulgate version of the Old Testament, he used the Hebrew uh, texts that were available to him in Jerusalem, which weren't necessarily the same Hebrew texts that were um, used at the time when Jesus lived in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. So they were, there are various variations in the Old Testament texts. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a great discovery for us. They were discovered in 1949, if I recall correctly. And they were from a Jewish community outside the city of Jerusalem, but they had Hebrew versions of uh, like Isaiah that vary from the current Masoretic text um, and are closer to the translation that you would find in the Septuagint. So the idea that all the Jews had the same set of Old Testament books and used them universally, and it was only that one translation um, is a false idea. It, it would be nice to think it was that way, but it's not really that way. And in the Dead Sea community, they actually had like tables with inkwells built into them that the, um, they were kind of like, they were celibate men working there. So they would be comparable to a Catholic monk of our time. Um, and part of their duty was to copy the scriptures, just like the Catholic monks hand copied the scriptures in the Middle Ages. So there wasn't just one Old Testament that all the Jews used. That's the important thing to start with. And some of the Jews, um, they were grouped into like 22 or 24 books uh, based on the Greek, the Jewish alphabet that had 22 letters. And so there would be like one group of books for each letter in the alphabet that way. 
And of course, this is long before printing presses, right? So uh, when you had a copy of, of the uh, any book in the Old Testament, you were hanging on to it pretty tightly and it was secured, right, inside of the synagogues or where else would they have they have turned up i guess ken is again there wasn't a lot of copies right so right um in the synagogue and that's the thing with the jews when they would make a copy of the scriptures you know that was the only time you were allowed to touch them with your hand um as you're writing them out and then after that you know uh many of us are familiar with the two things that kind of look like bowling pins that actually have or rolling pins like for baking mm-hmm. um, they look like rolling pins and then they have the scriptures wrapped up on one side or the other and you would turn the rolling pin handles to make the scriptures move on by and then they would have a um, a stylus that had like a little hand at the end with a finger and the person reading the scriptures would move that along in the letters to be able to read the scriptures. And another important thing that a lot of people don't know about is that the early Hebrew scriptures, they just had the consonant letters. They did not have the vowel letters. And a person would learn which vowels go with the consonants from their rabbi. So when you went to the rabbinic school to become a rabbi, your rabbi would teach you which uh, vowel letters go with the consonants of the scriptures you're reading. Later on, they add what they called vowel points, where there would be little dots that would go with the letters to help you know which vowels are supposed to be in there. Um, but the dots would fade over time and sometimes you didn't know if the dots went with a letter above or below. So it wasn't a real reliable way of um, keeping the track of which letters go where. Well, well <laughs> that's so, interesting. Why, why did they do that, Ken? Why did they leave the vowels out? Well, because everything had to be counted or copied by hand, you can save a lot of letters if you leave out the vowels. Just like with our modern you know, texting on our phone, a lot of people will leave out the vowels and you kind of like know what word they're talking about by the consonant letters and you kind of fill in the vowels yourself. Right. You pretty much know the word that they're talking about. So what's old is new. (laughs) We're talking about big books, right? So if you're adding vowels, it's uh, there's a lot of script there. I, I understand. No, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one interesting thing too, Ken, and just, just so people know our listeners, if you've never been in a a Jewish uh, synagogue, the, you mentioned the tabernacle, and that's where they kept the scrolls, and that's where they still do keep uh, the word, right? And uh, and if you've ever been, and uh, that's why when you they pray the Angelus, and uh, most of our, our listeners would probably know what the Angelus is, but if you don't, just, just check it out. But when we say the word was made flesh, and uh, you go to a Jewish synagogue, well, they got the word in a tabernacle, and at least in the two synagogues I've been in, they have a, a light, a red light, just like you would see in a Catholic church to signify the presence of the word in the Catholic church and in probably in some Orthodox churches too, maybe all of them. I just haven't been in enough of them, can I guess, but that red light signifies the presence of Jesus Christ in the tabernacle as well, which I think is a real beautiful, I don't know if we'd call that a tradition, we probably would, that we've taken from the Jewish people. 
because the word did become flesh in Jesus Christ. So I always, uh, when I saw that, that was very striking to me. Uh Um, So how about the early church fathers, uh, Ken? Uh, We've talked to our our mutual friend, William Hemsworth, about this. Uh, We had Jacob Woods, a young man that's uh, had a great journey from atheism to to the Catholic church uh, recently. And he talked about his influence uh, from the early church fathers, how that's influenced his uh, conversion back to the Catholic church. Uh, what was their what was their I guess position on a lot of these books and uh, um, did they read from these books uh, at during their time of you know 100 AD roughly from uh, like Polycarp who was the Bishop of Smyrna and he learned the faith from the Apostle John in we only have one letter from him and it's a cover letter from when he sent copies of Ignatius of Antioch's letters to the church in Philippi. But in his one letter, he uh, quotes from the book of Tobit, which is a deuterocanonical book. And uh, so we, we know that an, a bishop that the apostle John trained quotes from the book of Tobit. Mm-hmm. So we can easily deduce that he was at least using the book of Tobit and most likely he was using the Septuagint of the, which is the Greek translation of the old Testament and the new Testament, when it quotes from the old Testament, it's around 88% of the time that it quotes from the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew Masoretic text. Uh, because the New Testament is written in Greek, and if you want to write in the New Testament in Greek, it's a whole lot handier to just grab the Greek Old Testament when you're quoting from it, instead of having mm-hmm. to go to Hebrew and then translate that into Greek. If it's already in Greek, it's a lot handier that way. We know that we have a lot of books from the Old Testament that we would look at today in our scripture and they were available back then as well but how quickly i guess were the uh say the gospels the four gospels that we would read from matthew mark luke and john how early were they beginning to be quoted by some of these early church fathers right well around 180 a.d uh irenaeus who's the bishop of Lyon, which is now what we call gaul france uh he learned the faith from Polycarp. So we have a chain of custody from the Apostle John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. And, you know, we have to, again, think like Jews learning from their rabbis. You know, the rabbi would teach a student and that student would uh, offer the interpretation of the rabbi that he learned from. So Irenaeus, his interpretation of the Bible his understanding of the scriptures comes from Polycarp, which comes from John. So in 180 AD, Irenaeus writes that we only have four gospels because a lot of people don't know this, but at that time there were several other gospels floating around claiming to be by the apostles, uh, like a gospel of Peter, um, Let's see, Gospel of Thomas and assorted other ones. But he 
In 180 AD, Irenaeus writes in his book Against Heresies that we only have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he states that the authors of these Gospels are those guys. So there are some people that want to claim that, you know, the Gospels were written by other people and they just attributed to them. Um, the Apostle, well, like the Gospel of Mark is not, he doesn't mention that he wrote this anywhere in that gospel. Uh, but we, at the beginning of it, we have the gospel according to Mark. But that is something added by the publisher. It's not like the first line in Mark's gospel where it says, I, Mark, wrote this down for Peter, because that's what he taught. So I um, want to move forward a little bit to, let's go to this, uh, well, 200 AD, is it Origin? Origin, right. considering the four Gospels, uh, mentioning the Book of Acts, the letters of St. Paul. Um, who was Origin? Was he an early church father? He's an early church father. Uh, he's kind of like what we call a part-time church father. I think Gary Mashuda kind of coined that term uh, because he's an early church um, theologian, but some of his theology kind of went off the rails, and mm. so he's not a saint in the church, but mm. he does give us great insight into the early church. And he eventually kind of left the church, and his followers that you know continued to follow his theology were called originists later not later on. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, Origen, he lists the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the 14 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, Jude, 1 John, and the Book of Revelation of Scripture. Uh, but he expressed reservations about James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. Uh, and Origen also considered the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of the Hebrews, Acts of Paul, 1 Clement, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache and Shepherd of Hermas as divinely inspired. So those writings would have been included in his scriptures, but not uh, like James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John. So we can see at 200 AD, there isn't a standard New Testament canon. The number of books that people have or which books they consider scripture in that local area uh, varies from place to place. And I guess that would be the next question is around that time when, when the liturgy was celebrated, uh, they would obviously, obviously scripture still had a, a, a big part of the liturgy. What would be the, or who I guess had the authority to pick which books of the Bible, or I guess we should say the Bible, but I mean, is that, would, I don't even think they called it the Bible then, right? They would just call it the, would they call it the inspired books or what would they say? They would call and it the scriptures. They would call it scriptures. Okay. So like who would, I, I guess, would there be different books read in certain, certain areas or certain dioceses? You know, would one bishop approve of, of one set of text and the other would say, this is the scriptures that we can read from, or how did they yeah, how did they, I guess, make that, uh, draw to the conclusion that we're going to be reading from certain books of the Bible and maybe leaving certain ones out? Right. Well, we have to consider, like, around 200 A.D., 
uh, Christianity was still illegal in the Roman Empire. Uh, and so each bishop who, you know, was under threat of death at any time, <laughs> you know, he would be the, the guy who would determine which books are, is going to be read in the liturgy in the churches in his area. And there were some books that were held in common amongst all the bishops and some that were not. So they, uh, you know, different churches or different bishops would have different books that they would allow to be read in the liturgy in their area. Mm -hmm. So when did the church finally come together? Because I'm sure it's uh, probably a lot of the differences that bishops had. Eventually, they probably came to the realization that we need to have some uniformity here if we're the universal church. <laughs> what council uh, kind of got the the uh, the wheels moving towards something that had that universality of scripture, and where they said we're going to establish the scripture and and try to make sure that every church reads from the same text and the same scriptures as the guy down the street or even the parish that's uh, you know across the known, known world at the time. Right. Well, after the Council of Nicaea, uh, the Emperor Constantine, he wanted to have um, like 50 copies made of the Christian scriptures to be held in different libraries around the Roman Empire. So that's when they got to the point where they had to decide which books are going to be considered scripture. Um, and we still have... Uh, well, we have the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, and the Codex Alexandria. And only the Codex Vaticanus has all the books um, from the time that it was written. Although some of the pages in the Codex Vaticanus have been um, written over because the ink had faded so much. Uh, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandria are most likely copies of the same scriptures, but they're not complete. Uh, so between those three codexes, and the codex is like just a Greek word for a book or, um, or library, uh, but between those three, we have a complete set of scriptures from that time. Um, and this is just my own personal opinion. So everybody's, you know, allowed to dispute this, but I suspect that these codexes are from the group of 50 that Constantine com commissioned hmm. because hmm. they're pretty, pretty close to being the same. And that would, that would be used as reference in the future as well as different councils would meet, right? So, right. Like would that, would you say that that kind of be the foundation of, okay, you know, we've kind of established that these books belong to scripture back in, I guess it'd be the fourth century at that time, right? Right. And then kind of moving forward, that's how they established that, uh, that foundation. And basically these codexes include the Septuagint and what we now have is the New Testament. Um, there's some, you know, other additional information from the, the Septuagint that's in there, you know, like, um, the prologue to Ecclesiasticus and, um, which is like, comes before the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, 
uh, I think the wisdom of Solomon. They weren't necessarily read during the liturgy of the mass. Now, the, the Bible that we would see today in the Catholic Church and the when we, we pick up one of our, our Catholic Bibles, the the number of Old Testament and New Testament books, uh, how long is that the, these books have officially been, you know, included in a Catholic Bible, even before the the, the, the dawn of the printing press? <laughs> but right. when did it when did it sort of become standardized that the ones that we see today, you know, when was the what year was it where that kind of became um yeah, just a, a part of the church and something that, that uh, well, obviously the clergy would have access to at one time, and then with the, the dawn of the printing press, it became available to everybody. Right. Um, well, in between 325, where the codexes were written, um, and when 382, when Pope Damasus of Rome uh, proposed a canon, in 360 AD, the Council of Laodicea, again, this would be a local council run by the bishop and maybe surrounding bishops uh, in the city of Laodicea. They listed a canon of scripture for the New Testament that had 26 books in it. Um, they left off the book of Revelation as being canonical and suitable for reading during the liturgy of the mass. Um, because a lot of people back then and now find the book of Revelation rather confusing because John had to kind of write it in code hmm. so that only Christians would understand it and the Romans and Jews would not. So, yeah, I could see how that'd be jarring. It's jarring to people now. It probably was jarring to people then as well, right? Mm-hmm. Open to different mis misinterpretations, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> like we see today with the rapture, among other things. Right. And that's why Martin Luther didn't want it in his German Bible. It, mm -hmm. At least he moved it to the back uh, in the uh, appendix area. Um, but in 367, uh, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria, he listed the 27 books of the New Testament and his Easter letter sent to his churches. Um, every year, a bishop would send a letter to his local churches to establish the church calendar for that year when they're going to uh, celebrate the different feast days and also to provide guidance for their churches. So in 367, we finally have a local bishop that has the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. Um, now, Bishop Athanasius, the deuterocanonical books he writes how they're not necessarily scripture, but then he also quotes them in his teachings, um, saying like, it is written, yada, blah, 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 from a deuterocanonical book. So he uses them for teaching, but doesn't necessarily consider them suitable for reading during the liturgy. So it's not until 382 AD the Pope Damasus of the at the Council of Rome lists the 46 books of our that we currently have in the Catholic Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament as the canon of scripture for use in all churches under his control, like around Rome, basically the whole Western church. 
And he also sends a copy of that list to all the Eastern churches, you know, for their guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not made universally binding. You know, he's sending it to them. It's like, these are the books I recommend. And if you have input that you want to, or feedback you want to give, you know, he's open to hearing that. Um, but in 393 at the Council of Hippo, which is in North Africa, uh, Augustine led that council and they established the 46 Old Testament and 27 New Testament books as the books that they can read during the Liturgy of the Word at Mass. And in 397, the Council of Carthage, again under Augustine, they come up with the same list. And then they hold another council after that in 419, where they again establish that same list. And they send that list of books to the Bishop of Rome for approval. So the North African churches, they understand that the church of higher authority is the church in Rome. And they want to make sure that the church in Rome approves of their list. And of course, they were already on that same page. In hmm. backing up a little bit in 405 AD, Pope Innocent I, he lists the 46 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament as the canon of scripture. Um, and he's sending out letters to his churches. And one of them is um, the church in Lyon, France. So the, again, this is a record that we have that shows that at least by 405, the 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament are pretty much the standard. I was just thinking about this right now. The The Great Schism was when the, uh, I guess, the Eastern Orthodox split from the Catholic Church, right? Uh, that was right. in the 11th century. Do the Orthodox today, do they have the same bible as the catholic church or did they did they subtract or add any books to their bible right generally the orthodox churches they have uh third and fourth mac maccabees in their canon of scripture okay um there are some that have the shepherd of hermas um and i think i want to say it's an Ethiopian church where they have the book of Revelation in their uh, canon of scripture, but they do not read that in the liturgy of the mass. Uh, so they have it, okay. but they don't use it. <laughs> yeah. And then the Orthodox is splintered into so many different, um, you know, I guess by region or country. Um, you know, maybe everybody has a different, a little bit of a different interpretation of what uh, books can be used, and probably just like back in the the early uh, the early church as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. I guess when you don't have that definitive um, head, you know, like the Pope, um, maybe those those types of interpretations are a little bit more open. I don't know, but I was just curious. So that does make sense. So they do have a couple uh, extras. That's uh, that's interesting. We'll have to tackle that maybe with. Uh, just wanted to find someone that belongs to the Orthodox Church, and I think there's a lot of room for some reconciliation and, and bringing us together. I know there's uh, literally centuries of, of baggage that come with uh, the relationship with 
Catholics and Orthodox, but I think we can learn a lot from each other too. So that might be an interesting thing to dig into a little bit more. Now right. let's talk a little bit about the English Bible, Ken. Um, you know, we've got obviously the world today speaks English for the most part. Uh, a big part of the the Reformation, or at least kind of the the, the fruits of the Reformation, um, wouldn't call them good fruits necessarily at all, but. Uh, but when it came to, to scripture and, uh, you know, we see the King James Version being used quite extensively in North America, for sure, uh, amongst our Protestant brothers and sisters that have separated from us. But um, did the Catholic Church have an English version of the Bible earlier than, like, say, the Protestants would have had one? Maybe tell us a little bit about that history, Ken. Sure. Um, in the late 600s, the first of many English translations of the Bible were made into an early version of English called Kedemon. Uh, and then around 700 AD, uh, St. Bede finished a complete translation of the Bible into Anglo-Saxon. Um, so for a lot of people don't know um, that English is um, the English we speak today, of course, is not the same English that the founding fathers of the U.S. spoke, or, you know, even earlier than that, there are earlier versions of what eventually became what we now call the English language. Mm -hmm. And so, Cadman and Anglo-Saxon are earlier versions of that. Uh, between 639 and 709, Eldham translated the complete book of Psalms and large portions of other scriptures into Old English. And between 850 and 899 AD, King Alfred the Great translated the Bible from Anglo-Saxon into the English of his time. And around 1000 AD, Alfredic, Alfric also provided an English Anglo-Saxon translation of the Bible. And in the late 1200s, Orm provided a, an accepted Middle English translation of the Bible. And in the 1349, Richard Roll completed an accepted Middle English translation of the Bible. So all of these predate John Wycliffe's translation in the 1382. And all these earlier ones were accepted by the Catholic Church. They weren't a standard version of the scriptures, but they were deemed suitable for reading to people that understood that language at that time. But in 1382, John Wycliffe supervised many unauthorized Middle English translations of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate. Um, and interesting to note, these translations included the deuterocanonical books that Protestants are now missing from their Bible. So Protestants that like to point to John Wycliffe as the first guy who translated the Bible into English, even though that's not true, uh, they should also learn that John Wycliffe translated the deuterocanonical books into English also. So he counted them as scripture also because they were in his Latin Vulgate. That was what he knew as scripture. He translated those books too. 
Well, that's interesting because you hear the the name John Wycliffe from among Protestant circles quite often. Uh, who mm-hmm. was John Wycliffe, Ken? Uh, this is before would, the Reformation, right? So yeah, this is before the Reformation, uh, and he was he lived in England. He was part of a group called the Lollards, and they were kind of a rebellious Christian group um, from the very beginning. You know, just like in Paul's time when he was writing letters to all these churches that are not following what the church teaches. And that's mostly what Paul's epistles are about. All through time, there's always been Christians that are kind of getting off the rails and they need guidance back to the truth. Hmm. And John Wycliffe was one of those Christian groups, well, part of one of those Christian groups that was getting off the rails and they needed some guidance to get back in with the church. Uh, One of the things that the Lollards taught was that if uh, a clergy person or a ruler was in the state of sin, you didn't have to listen to their guidance. And since they were the determiners of who was in a state of sin, they could decide not to listen to anybody they wanted. Imagine dissidents back then. I mean, we got some things just never change, eh? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to English translation, uh, what was the Catholic Church's response to that? Because you've got these texts that obviously unauthorized, um, Mm -hmm. they start to float out there. Uh, You know, you you always hear too about, um, you know, one of the, I mean, it's an anti-Catholic argument saying, well, the Catholic Church was responsible for burning books, uh, things like that. Did that, um, and the reason they were burning books is that Bibles was because these Bibles, I'm guessing because they were unauthorized, maybe similar to what Wycliffe was started. I'm sure other versions started popping up as the decades and the, and even the, the centuries wore on. Right. Um, John Wycliffe, you know, he changed words in the Bible uh, from, you know, like church became congregation um, and, Bishops became presbyters, things like mm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he used different English words than what we would normally use in our modern English Bibles. Um, and Tyndale was a later translator, and you know he kind of built off of Wycliffe. And Tyndale, he would you know make a translation and have them published uh, and distributed. And one of the things the Catholic Church did was to buy up his unsold books or undistributed books and then burn them so that the mistranslated word of God would not get spread. And I think that's an important thing to note, right? Mm-hmm. And that words do matter, right, Ken? Like they really do matter. Uh, and in the Catholic Church... The words of, of, you know, when we talk about our liturgy and the words of consecration, the words of or the um, administration of any sacrament, you know, even that's baptism. We saw that story, I don't know if you noticed that a few years ago or last year, where there was, uh, um, uh, I believe it was a priest. That it was a deacon. Made, it was a deacon? Yep. Okay. But do you remember the story where there was a, an infant that was baptized and they, I don't know if they became a deacon or a priest, but they realized that the right words were not said when they were baptized and the baptism was invalid. Uh, do you remember that? 
I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, actually I, happened to that occurred in my area in my diocese. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. <laughs> well, a coincidence, but it does it just highlights the fact that in the church we we value words so much, right? They mean something. So if you change one or two things, somebody from the outside might look and say, "Well, what's the big deal?" Right? But it is a big deal in the eyes of God and the church. So you know. Um, so that that it's interesting to um, to see why the reasons for the church burning Bibles. Of course, they a lot of people just don't know the whole story or don't want to say what the true story was. But that is what it's about. Is that especially when you talk about the scriptures being the inspired word of God, you got to be accurate, right? Right. So, what was the Catholic Church's response to these uh, unauthorized uh, English? Uh, Bibles? And I guess at that time, the English language is a, a little more similar to what we would use today, right? So what would the, uh, yeah, what was the Catholic Church's response to that? Uh, did they end up with an English translation that was authorized formally by the church? Um, yeah, the Catholic Church did come up with the Dewey Rames translation of the Bible in mm-hmm. 1610. And uh, that actually predates the King James Bible translation of 1611. And the 1610 Dewey Rames translation is approved by the catholic church it was a translation from the vulgate but it had margin notes that also referred back to the original hebrew and greek um so it was a it's a good old english translation if you want to if you want like a catholic version of the king james bible the Dewey Rames is a good one to refer to. Yes, for sure. And I've uh, got a copy of that myself. So that's, uh, that is interesting. Around, right around the same time as well as the King James Version, right? And, right? and that was when some of the books in the Bible that we're familiar with as Catholics, like First and Second Maccabees, uh, uh, Tobit, Sirach, uh, those were dropped from the King James Version, right? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> The original 1611 King James Version of the Bible still had all the Deuterocanonical books in it. Oh, okay. So 1611. So it was shortly after the Dewey Rames was translated, right? And, and right. authorized by the church. So the yep. King, the, the original King James Version still had those, those books right. in. Hmm. And That's interesting. Yeah, the King James Bible was, um, again, translated for the Church of England. Um and the Church of England was, you know, pretty hostile to the Catholic Church at that time, because uh, Henry VIII wanted to be, well, he had already passed on by then, but he broke away from the Catholic Church and made himself the Pope of the Church of England. And King James authorized a new translation of the Bible into English for use in the Church of England. Uh, that would also be perhaps acceptable to the um, the pilgrims um, and other you know groups that were trying to break away from the Church of England because they didn't like the way the Church of England uh, practiced Christianity either. So again, the Church of England's breaks away from the Catholic Church, and then other groups want to break away from the Church of England. Mm-hmm. The pilgrims that came to uh, North America 
were, they broke off from the Church of England, which broke off from the Catholic Church. They thought the Church of England was still too Catholic. The Puritans did not like, you know, the way that the Church of England, you know, still was full of sinners. The Puritans wanted to be the pure ones, which is why they were called themselves Puritans. So um, humble of them, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny when they got to North America here, you know, they had disputes amongst each other. It's like, well, you did this and that's a sin. And it's like, well, I didn't think it was a sin because of these extenuating circumstances or something like that. Uh, so mm-hmm. people would get uh, thrown out of different Puritan groups or different Puritan groups would split up because, you know, they agreed with this person and some of them agreed with that person. And it's much like our Protestant churches today that, you know, a dispute breaks out in a, a Protestant church and then half the congregation goes one way and half yeah. the other con- congregation goes another way. Yep. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's sad to see that even from uh, a Catholic perspective, I think we take for granted that we have that, that unity. And uh, of course we've we, we have our issues within our church. Let's not, <laughs> let's not, uh, you know, uh, sit back and pretend some of these uh, these divisions don't uh, exist, but uh, we do have we do have scripture. We do have the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We have so many great ways to to guide us, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, and these other uh, congregations just don't have that. So when you have um, you know when you have just uh, earthly men, sinners uh, that uh, you know sometimes they interpret things the way they see it, uh, and you don't have that hierarchy and the, the bishop to to help to uh, resolve these disputes, like it says in the scripture, right? Right. You get all kinds of divisions. So yeah. So the um, the modern day King James version, uh, English again, uh, and of course there's a lot of different, I guess, translations. Would you say amongst different congregations of Protestants? But w- the reason that they decided to drop the the books that we talked about here just a few minutes ago what was the true reason for that was that just again men people from the reformation you know interpreting things the way that they wanted to interpret them or was there another reason for them to drop right well in the original king james bible the deuterocanonical books were in a section referred to as the apocryphal books and it was between the old testament and the new testament um and apocryphal means hidden. So again, like for the translators at that time, they translated the apocryphal books into English, but they didn't count them as being on the same level as scripture being inspired by God. They were like historical books that you would read to fill in the information, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so even though they were still in there, they weren't necessarily suitable for reading during the liturgy of the word during mass. Um, But they continued to be in there. And eventually, to save on printing costs, they would list them in the uh, index at the beginning of the book, but they stopped printing them. And by 1769, uh, the... English Bible Society said that uh, established a policy that they were not going to sponsor the publishing of any Bibles that had these books in them anymore. So at that point, they were pretty much dropped. Um, 
And also like around 1769, there was a revision done to the King James Bible. Uh, and let's see, there's like two different versions. There's the Oxford version and another uh, version. So there were cost considerations here is what, uh, right. what you're saying. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, not, that's not interesting, eh? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what, you know, leads us to, to where we're at today. I mean, you, you know, I, I remember when I was young and I would bring up uh, the book of Sirach, for instance, which is, uh, I think that's one that, um, you know, out of those those Old Testament books, that's the one that a lot of Catholics are familiar with. Uh, some great, well, just like the, the title of the book is called the, the Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, right? Sirach, that's what it's called, I think, right? Right, yep. Um, it's really, really good stuff in there, but I remember one time I quoted it. And I think actually it might have been from the book of Tobit, something there to a Protestant, but not knowing, you know, I was a teenager at the time, they mm. looked at me like I was from outer space. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what book in the Bible is that? And I was surprised to look at their book and yeah, that's right. It wasn't, uh, wasn't there. So, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting to see how this, uh, this has all kind of come to play. I, I'm learning a lot here, Ken. This is great. So one last one for you. The time is full, and I, I love I love talking about stuff like this. And I hope that our listeners are are picking up some pieces of information to learn more about the history of Scripture, first and foremost, and also the English translation and what we have today. But when we do go to Mass, whether that's on a daily basis, which is great if we can do it, but you've got to go every Sunday for sure. And if you can, even if you can't go to Mass every every weekday, it's great to just follow along with the church, right, Ken? Like you can get the daily readings um, mm-hmm. And uh, the whole universal church reads from the same scripture every day too. Right. The uh, the English version that we have today, or the, I guess the English translation, is that rooted or, or the foundation was from the Dewey Rames, or was there something that was a little bit more recent that that's come about to, uh, yeah, to the English version that we would see today in the United States or Canada? Right. Well, the during the liturgy of the Mass um, today. The readings come from the New American Bible, which is a more modern translation. Um, And it's not just, you know, straight from the Vulgate. It takes advantage of all the earlier texts that we have since found. Um, So there's a much larger family of texts that goes into that translation. Uh, Because there are variations in, you know, the most ancient copies of the books of scripture that we have. So we, and they would generally go by the majority of them, um, but then they would also factor in, you know, how early is this book compared to this one? Um, Because there would be, what they would kind of refer to as like families of scriptures um, or families of texts, yeah. Uh, There would be like an original source text and then there would be like some variations that would branch off of that source text. And then there would be other variations that branched off of a different source text. But it's not like there's major differences. Like, you know, instead of like um, the word brother, it might say kinsman or something like that, you know, but there isn't like one version of the gospels that said that Jesus is not God and another version of the gospels that says Jesus is God. It's not that major. It's just some minor variations, but the new American Bible is what we get in the lectionary at mass. 
Um, but an even better version, English version, is the new revised standard version, Catholic edition, um, which is from a larger group of texts. And if you can get the Ignatius Study Bible, that is the new revised standard version Catholic edition with study notes then to help you understand <clears throat> like the culture and the of the time when it was written and how the church has interpreted that over the years. This has been really good, Ken. I've learned a lot. Thanks so much for, for joining us and talking about uh, some of the history of scripture, how it came together and even how our us here in North America and English-speaking uh, places around the world, we have an English Bible, how the uh, the background and what the history looked like to uh, to bring that about. So really appreciate it a lot, Ken. Tell us how people can get a hold of you if they'd like to get a hold of your book. Again, I'd like to refer people back to episode 37 of our podcast when Ken joined us for How Old Is Your Church? The uh, uh, That was the, the book that Ken wrote a couple of years ago, and we talked about that book specifically. But uh, yeah, how can people get a hold of you and your work, Ken? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, um, and you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com. Uh, if you send me an email, I will gladly send you my apologetic library. It's like 200 plus writings, and I'll send it to you for free. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon. It's only $6, and you can get the ebook version for $3. So, it's a, a lot of information uh, for not much money. And my book is intended to be an introductory apologetic guide. It's got like 25 chapters and each one could be a book all on its own. So, but if you don't want to read 25 books, you just get my book and you get uh, the Cliff Notes version <laughs> of 25 other books. Thanks again to Ken Litchfield for joining us in this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. Again, highly encourage you to reach out to Ken through his email address that he provided and also follow him on Facebook. Uh, so much great information and again, real inspiration to me because Ken just picked up apologetics himself. He wanted to learn more about his faith, more about the church so that he could share it with others. Uh, just an outstanding example. So thanks, Ken. We'll definitely be chatting with you again here in the near future. Well, thanks for listening again to the podcast, everyone. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. We're also on Gab and Getter. Drop us a line, drop me a line anytime, drop us a review on Spotify, Apple, Google. Let's get our message out, this great message of the cross, Jesus Christ. And truth, the truth, the 100% truth can only come through the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's give that to the rest of the world. And remember, freedom and liberty that does not come from government. No, it does not. It comes from Jesus Christ. So let's introduce the world to the cross and to Jesus Christ and keep fighting for freedom. Be an example, my Catholic brothers and sisters. Sometimes our leadership, sometimes our own membership lets us down, but you can be the difference in this world. You can be the church. You can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to this world. And when they see you by your example, by your word, by your action, they're going to say, I want to be like that. I want the hope that is in that person. And when they find out that you're a lover of Jesus Christ, it's contagious. So let's light this world ablaze with the love of Jesus Christ. And we know how we got to do that. We got to be living in a state of grace. Oh, yes, we do. 
And it's the best way to live, the only way to live. And you got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent, and anytime you're in a state of mortal sin. Don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.